Hello and welcome to the Double Play Podcast. Happy to have you with me today. I am your host, Anderson Picard. We are back talking about football and baseball. And, well, like past weeks, there's not a lot to talk about as the coronavirus pandemic rages on and we still are looking for answers. We do have a couple updates, nothing super significant. We don't quite know when sports will return, but there are some different uh, notes regarding the resumption of a potential season. We'll also go through a couple transactions that have happened, and I'll share uh, my thoughts on those in both uh, in, in football. And so uh, as we get started here, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at DoublePlayPTST, and you can follow Primetime Sports Talk, which hosts this podcast. You can follow them on Twitter at Talk Primetime and check them out online at PrimetimeSportsTalk.com. Uh, we will have a guest in this show, so joining us later on in the baseball portion of this podcast, Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com will join us to talk about his uh, charitable endeavors, which have really been amazing, amazing work, really great role model, and he's been doing some amazing stuff, so we'll, uh, I'll, get, I'll get into that a little more later on, but uh, Chris Cotillo will join the show later on, so make sure to tune into that. Uh, so I guess just don't leave, all right? So stay here for the full thing. Uh, it's action-packed podcast as as much as it can be of course right now um, but I'm excited to get into this talking about various things for both baseball and football so without further ado let's uh, check out some recent notes from the football world the first thing I want to talk about is the Seattle Seahawks so at running back they have signed Carlos Hyde they signed him uh, they signed him to a deal and that left uh, an interesting storyline that unfolded after that. Devontae Freeman potentially holding out. Uh, the Seahawks reportedly had interest in Freeman, but the former Falcons running back declined an offer from the Seahawks. He's prepared to hold out, according to various reports, until he receives a contract that obviously fits his expectations. Now, we've seen this not work out very well. Most notably, Le'Veon Bell held out when he played with the Steelers, and that ultimately was his last year in uh, Pittsburgh. He made his way to the New York Jets, and he's still a great running back, but he hasn't quite gotten to that back to that level that he was playing at with the Steelers. So the holdout definitely hurt him. And then, of course, there's Melvin Gordon from the Chargers, uh, who now plays for the Broncos. He did not get the contract he was looking for this offseason and ended up settling. Uh, but even when he returned from his holdout, because he returned midway through the season, unlike Bell, uh, who held out the whole year. Um, so, yeah, so Gordon was holding out for part of the season, and he came back, and Austin Eckler seemed to have the lead job. You know, Austin Eckler and Melvin Gordon are two different types of running backs, so they complemented each other nicely. But Austin Eckler was clearly the lead back, and uh, so another situation where holding out really didn't help. So, I mean, at some point, you you're bound to see uh, a holdout work in favor of the player. But at the same, at the same, uh, and this is the same perspective, players need to realize that most of the time holding out doesn't really work. Now I understand if you aren't getting the money you think you worth, you're worth holding out makes, makes sense. But just looking at the future, we don't have enough data that suggests holding out is a good thing. Uh, so again, there's situations where it works uh, and I'm sure we'll see it work in the future, but as of now, I don't think Devontae Freeman is the right candidate to hold out. Um, so anyways, that's a peculiar story to follow. Uh, I think we could see more about more coming with that in the next week or two. Uh, 
Beyond that, the Jets made a deal, uh, and they've been in the news several times in the last few weeks. Uh, they signed Joe Flacco to a one-year, $1.5 million contract that included an additional $3 million in incentives. I like that deal for the Jets. It's good to have uh, someone for Sam Darnold to learn from, and at the same time know that if he starts to mess up, it's not going to be Luke Falk replacing him. You know, Sam Darnold is eons better than Luke Falk, but now he has a proven veteran behind him, and the Jets... I guess what I'm saying is the Jets aren't afraid to put Flacco in over Darnold, whereas you would never put Luke Falk in over Darnold. So now there's that competition. Darnold will win the job out of training camp, but if there's a game where he throws two or three interceptions by halftime and it's still a 14-point game, you know, they're losing by 14 points, I could totally see them throw Flacco in to uh, try and salvage the game. Also in Jets news, uh, they have reportedly reached an impasse with all-pro safety Jamal Adams. Now, Adams is in a situation where basically just pay him what he's looking for. Give him a blank check. He's an all-pro all pro player, still on a rookie deal. He, really, losing him would hurt. Uh, trading him is another possibility. I guess that wouldn't hurt as much as just losing him to free agency when he be- becomes a free agent. But, you know, you've got if you're the Jets, you have the money. You've got to give this man a blank check because otherwise your defense is going to crumble. You know, he's obviously the best, uh, the best player in New York er, for the Jets. And... They need to give him his money. He deserves he's deserved that cash, and if he's not going to get what he wants, he can certainly find a different place that will give him the contract that he's looking for. You know, I don't think he's too concerned right now about uh, about like oh, if I don't get the contract I want from the Jets, he'll just head somewhere else. No, I don't think that's the case. Or I, th- I think that is the case. If he doesn't get the contract he wants, he will head somewhere else. Uh, I don't think he's worried that if he doesn't get a deal with the Jets, he won't get a deal elsewhere. So he'll he's probably looking at. I don't want to quite say $20 million because that's pretty excessive, but uh, definitely north of $15 million in like the $17 or $18 million range. I could see $20 million, but probably not with the Jets. So that will be something to monitor. Uh, I've seen stuff saying he could get traded. I doubt he gets traded, but you never know. Elsewhere in football, uh, Josh Gordon of the Seahawks, uh, or actually he played for the Seahawks and Patriots last year. He's a free agent now. He is currently suspended, but is expected to apply for reinstatement. He's obviously been suspended for so many uh, occasions. I don't have the number right in front of me, but he's uh, been handed a lot of substance abuse suspensions. So he's expected to apply for reinstatement. He uh, is optimistic. According to Pro Football Talk, he's optimistic that he'll get reinstated by the commissioner of football, Rob May... Uh, wrong sport, Roger Goodell. Anyways, uh, he's, he's optimistic that he'll get reinstated. I don't know. I mean... There's only so many, his his track record, if I'm Roger Goodell and I see that track record, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, it was a mistake. I'm sure you're going to be able to clean it up. We know it wasn't a mistake. Will he be able to clean it up and will he be able to improve going forward? One more suspension and he's, I mean, we I've said this before. People have said this before, like three or four suspensions ago, we've said one more suspension and he's done. And somehow he keeps finding his way back and he's a good wide receiver. So he needs to be able to keep his, uh, keep his, substance abuse away from his life uh, and he needs to focus on football because he can make a great career here in the NFL but his the clock's running out if he makes one more mistake I think his career is done for good and I don't think reinstatement will ever be considered again uh, we also saw a rumor that Chargers head coach Anthony or it wasn't a rumor I guess Lynn confirmed it but Chargers head coach Anthony Lynn said the Chargers considered signing free agent quarterback Cam Newton another thing I want to talk about briefly Cam Newton just in himself without even linking him to the Chargers, how is he still a free agent? 
I mean, Joe Flacco, yes, Joe Flacco is a great quarterback with a great veteran presence. He's proven himself, uh, but he's not, I don't think he's at Cam Newton's level. Now, you have to keep in mind, Flacco got $1.5 million with an extra $3 million in incentives. So that's somewhere between $1.5 million and $4.5 million. It's quite possible that Cam Newton is looking for 6 to $10 million. So, you know, you have to think about what's the best value for a player uh, if, you know, without overspending but still finding the right value. Uh, but still, it just shocks me that Flacco went before Cam Newton. Um, and again, you don't know what the asking prices are. Newton has said he wants to start uh, and he wouldn't get that right away in New York with the Jets, and I'm just thinking about this Flacco situation, but I don't think there's anywhere where he'll really get a starting job. I think he'd have to fight for it. But still, how is this man not signed? Uh, I'm sure we'll see a signing in the next few weeks. I don't think it'll take it till the season. Sometimes players like that will wait until the season begins so they can uh, see like where an injury is or which quarterback is suddenly failing. You know, uh, Chicago could be a place like that if he does decide to wait until the season. If Chicago sees... Uh, Mitchell Trubisky and Nick Foles both essentially fail, uh, and they need someone to salvage their season. Cam Newton could be the right guy there. That is, uh, we could have seen that last year, just looking back at different scenarios where we've seen this with the Steelers, with Mason Rudolph and Devlin Hodges both struggling. Uh, they needed a veteran to come in and salvage their season, and they were unable to get that, uh, which is makes sense considering they're young players, but I think... Uh, if you're really a team such as the Bears, uh, just thinking about them off the top of my head, with a good defense and a couple weapons on offense, and your quarterbacks are failing and you need to salvage your playoff hopes, you're not just going to rely on those quarterbacks to get you two picks and a touchdown every game. You're going to rely on someone like Cam Newton, who's a proven player, who has a track record of being successful, who is probably fairly cheap. Go ahead and sign him. I mean, I think I think he deserves a job soon. Uh there's also the Rooney rule discussions. I'm not going to get too much into that, but there's been a lot of talk about that with uh, hiring and interviewing minority head coaches and executives. Jim Trotter of NFL.com reported the NFL owners uh, are preparing to vote on a proposal that would award teams draft picks for hiring minority coaches and executives. I believe they also said uh, the NFL announced that they expanded from having to interview one minority candidate to two. Uh, So, that is definitely a good step in the right direction. I'm not sure how I feel about uh, awarding teams draft picks because that's a whole another controversy right there. I, I don't I don't really know how I feel about it right now, but I don't think at this moment it's the right choice. Again, if it's going to cause controversy, controversy, I don't think it's the right decision. Uh, even if it's good for the game, I don't think you know I don't think awarding teams draft picks and uh, causing you know issues is the right decision. Um, even if it is in the effort to make a breakthrough uh, in the NFL. So that's my take on that. Uh, There's also one more thing I want to discuss in the football world. We saw four players in trouble within a span of 48 hours. So first Seahawks cornerback Quinton Dunbar and Giants cornerback DeAndre Baker were both uh, arrested for an armed robbery incident. Uh, so we've seen a lot about that, and I'm not going to get into it because it's old news by now if you're listening to this podcast. Happy Memorial Day, by the way. Uh, it's it's Tuesday now as this episode goes live, but uh, uh, yesterday was Memorial Day, and I hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day. Anyways, this was almost a week and a half ago when Dunbar and Baker were arrested. They turned themselves in. 
They appeared in front of court. They were both released, but there's restrictions on both of them. Again, you've heard the news. I'm sure you have. I'm not going to get too much into that. I'm not going to share my opinion on that. But so that those were the first two uh, issues, I suppose. Then the next day, Redskins wide receiver Cody Latimer was arrested. He's facing five charges, including three felonies and two misdemeanors for assault in the second degree, menacing, illegal discharge of a firearm, prohibited use of a weapon, and reckless endangerment. So uh, that's the third incident within that was within 24 hours of the baker and dunbar news and then the next morning that sunday morning actually it was saturday night but we found out sunday morning bill's uh young defensive lineman ed oliver was arrested on charges of driving while intoxicated and unlawfully carrying a weapon so he was the fourth nfl player arrested in the in that span of 36 to 48 hours uh, 2018 uh, he was a for, former first round pick for the bills 2019 first round pick i believe uh so that's that. It was interesting to see those four arrests. I'm not going to speculate too much on it, but maybe it has something to do with the coronavirus. I don't know. There's a lot that I don't think we know yet, and I really don't want to speculate on that until we have more information. And even then, I'm not going to give too much opinion, but it was interesting to see all four of those come out, considering we haven't seen news like that in a while. Uh, really, since the Antonio Brown incident, there's been a little bit mixed in in between, but uh, four four in a row within a, within one to two days that that was eye-opening i suppose uh that's that's all we've got really i i will say this there was that rumor that came out that the seahawks offered russell wilson to the browns in exchange for their number one pick before uh cleveland drafted baker mayfield in 2018 i'm not really sure if i believe that uh you know i'm not gonna bash chris sims too much but there's a lot of people who don't trust his work some people do I don't really know. Um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting rumor, that's for sure. And it makes sense, but it doesn't like make sense if that makes uh, if that makes any sense at all. Um, why would Seattle offer Russell Wilson away? I don't know. I mean, he was approaching the end of his contract. Um, he is aging, but obviously he's still a star. One, he's going to be an MVP candidate for several seasons, if I had to imagine. Another thing I was thinking about is that it said the the report said it was may uh sorry it was Russell Wilson for a, for the number 1 overall pick and people were saying what why did the the Browns reject that but another thing to keep in mind is though the way i read the report was the Seahawks if they were going to complete that trade wanted the f- number 1 overall pick but they might have also been asking for other picks so the Browns had the number 4 pick that year uh, and then they had first round picks in 2019 2020 so uh, they could have been, you know, the Seahawks could have been asking for four first-round picks, and the and two of those were, I mean, the 2018 ones were number one and number four, so that's already huge. Uh, but if the Seahawks were saying, "Hey, give me, give us four or five first-round picks," that's pretty extreme. And in that scenario, you see why the Seahawks offered it and why the Browns rejected it. So uh, people are were a bit quick to jump on that rumor, understandably so. Anytime there's talk about a star player being moved like that, especially of Russell Wilson's caliber, uh, quarterback trades like that, you don't see very often. So uh, I understand why people jumped at the report and were really interested in it. I was completely uh, in that same boat, but uh, that was my take on it is that I don't think we quite know all the details and we'll never know all the details. If this report is confirmed to be true, or if it is true, and I don't think we'll ever know if it is true or not true, uh, but if it is true, we still won't know all the details. So either way, uh, it's it didn't happen. It's in the past, but that rumor was certainly something 
that was interesting to me. That's essentially all we've got to talk about from football today. Uh, Those were basically just the biggest rumors from the past two weeks since we last recorded a podcast. Uh, Talks about the season opening up. You know, there's a lot of optimism right now that there will at least be a season. Who knows about fans? I I don't know. I think maybe we can get... I think there'd be a possibility for fans come opening uh, opening week. I don't think preseason would be quite in time. But then again, maybe they'll bring them in slowly. Maybe they'll be half capacity. Uh, There's a lot of unique ideas being floated around. That's something you love to see right now uh, but all in all it's it's hard to tell uh what will happen obviously as as with all this right now i just hope the governments and the league make the right decision to keep everyone safe like i've said in past episodes we all want our sports back but safety is the number one priority so that's all i've got for the football segment of the show we'll get into a quick little bit of baseball uh, gossip before we get into our interview with chris Catillo of masslive.com The biggest thing I want to talk about relating to what I just uh, spoke about regarding football is what would happen if baseball returned. And now Major League Baseball has submitted a new proposal to the Players Union. It's been approved by the owners, and now the Players Union is reviewing it. And there was a massive safety proposal. So uh, outlined was all the ways that the league would try and keep players safe. I would imagine it included testing, various... I I know it included various isolation policies and techniques, so... Uh, There was a lot from Major League Baseball to try and get the players' union to agree that their players would be kept safe at all times and it would still be beneficial for them. Uh, One thing I found interesting was John Heyman of uh, MLB Network reported this. Actions being cut or discouraged by Major League Baseball in their new proposal? Spitting is not allowed and seeds are not allowed and tobacco is not allowed. So no spitting, can't have that saliva leave your mouth. Uh, and before we get into the other things, I'm curious how they will enforce this. If they see someone spit, do they eject them, find them, just warn them? What happens if they get too many warnings? So there's a lot to be discussed in that realm. Uh, I think safety is the top priority, like I said. So I would imagine it's probably a fine. But then again, you're already taking their money away. The, really, I, I honestly don't know. So I can't speculate on it too much or else I'll just be blabbering this whole time but uh it'll be interesting to see how they enforce that anyways spitting no seeds no tobacco those are all uh, prohibited licking your fingers isn't allowed you know pitchers will lick their fingers when they're going to pitch so that is a significant uh that's going to have a significant impact on them obviously again safety take listen to all these with safety as a top priority in mind whether i like the idea or not i know that safety is the top priority Uh, but anyways licking the fingers not a good idea uh, that will be either cut or discouraged. Fighting, brawls. I mean, that's like that's not six feet apart. That's putting f- seventy-five to eighty people because you've got the whole 25, 26 man roster. Twenty-six man rosters now could be expanded when baseball returns. But twenty-six man rosters for both teams. That's fifty-two players. You have bullpen catchers and coaches. That brings the total to right about eighty, if I had to imagine. Um, not everyone's going to be punching. They might be just like coming out into the scrum. But either way, you're going to have about 80 people in one area. So a brawl is a big way not just to make contact with each other, but to be in a small region or area uh, with other people. So that's a big no-no. I would imagine that's comp- – I mean, and again, how do you how do you enforce that? You're not going to be able – you have just a few umpires. You have four umpires in a normal game. How are you going to get four umpires to make sure 80 players – stay away from each other. 
For example, if if uh, I don't know if Shohei Otani hits Jose Altuve with a pitch, because we know the Astros could quite possibly be hit by a bunch of pitches this year after the scandal, what happens then? Does Altuve retaliate? Does he charge the mound? Uh, what happens then? Then you have then you already have a benches clearing brawl, and there's nothing the umpires can do to stop it. These are 80 burly athletic men with an intent to fight, and you're not going to be able to break them up just because you can't just say, hey, these are the rules, please separate. They're not going to do that, obviously. So, again, how do you enforce that one? That's another one that uh, I don't think, I honestly don't think can be enforced. Um, you know, maybe we'll see a fight or two less than expected, but I don't think that can be enforced uh, really well. And you you probably can't find every single player, so uh, that'll be something to look at. I don't think that can be enforced much. Hitting or meeting inside is also cut or discouraged. Uh, I don't think that's a big deal. I mean, it completely makes sense. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into that one. Uh, it makes sense. You can't can't practice or meet inside. Um, again, for isolation and distancing rules, uh, being confined to a small area. I don't see much of an issue with that one. Bat boy is not allowed. Uh, obviously, just trying to limit and get rid of as many non-essential players and yeah, coaches and executives as possible. Um, if it takes an extra five to ten seconds for a player to fetch their own bat or to fetch a foul ball uh, and and take care of that, then so be it. Uh, if it keeps people safe, it's obviously worth it. Uh, so that makes sense to me. High fives or fist bumps not allowed. <sighs> That's going to be tough, obviously. Home runs, grand slams, sick plays. You can't high five your teammates. It's just instinct. You know, I don't think players would do it necessarily to violate the rules or to say they don't care about the rules, but simply because that's what you do. You high five people in baseball. I mean, all the pictures, if you Google a picture of a player you like, just say Troy Tulowitzki, for example, you're going to see a lot of pictures of him high fiving players in the dugout after like a home run or something. Cause that shows the player, you know, in the moment and excited and stuff. And that's why people take a picture of that. But you, they do it all the time. I mean, they high five, they fist bump, they celebrate. Baseball players are fun and energetic and happy and they're going to celebrate, and they're going to do high fives and fist bumps. So I don't really see this one being uh, cut too much. And I would imagine this is not only discouraged, it's probably removed in general. So I don't know how that'll be enforced. I don't think it can be enforced. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see that one making any sense. I think the I think the players' union will be fine saying, yeah, okay, we won't do high fives. But in the end, I think players will do high fives and fist bumps. No carpooling or subways, that makes sense. You can't leave your hotel other for a game or practice. That makes sense. Again, I think we've known ever since March that if the season returned, players would be held to their hotels. Trading lineup cards is a no-no. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those not really thought about. Like when you think of things that players can't do, you don't really think about that one. Um, but, you know, touching one paper and giving it to someone else and then bringing it out to the other team's manager and then bringing it back in and having someone hang it up or put it in a binder. There's a lot of people touching that. And it's just those little things that help limit the spread. And then touching your face. Obviously, players wiping sweat off their face or coaches giving signs from third and first base and touching their nose or the brim of their hat or their ears or their chin or something like that. Uh, touching the face could, just like high fives and fist bumps, be something that people don't realize they do. And that goes for the real world, too. I touch my face and without realizing, and I know a bunch of people do that. If you watch videos of people just living life, having press conferences, stuff like that, you're going to see them touch their face. It's just humans do it. It's either maybe because they're nervous or maybe because they have an itch 
whatever reason it is, people touch their face. So again, that's another unintentional one that people will do uh, by mistake without realizing it. Um, obviously, they have the best intentions, but you know sometimes you can't control those uh, quick decisions. Uh, so those are the big takeaways that John Heyman reported in his uh, his well, I guess report about what would be cut and discouraged in the new Major League Baseball proposal. We don't have any updates on that proposal. Major League Baseball's Players Union is still reviewing it. I would expect we hear something within the next week because I'm expecting to hear news on minor league baseball by uh, between the 1st of June and about the 10th of June. Uh, minor league baseball, I know I've seen various, uh, spoken with various minor league executives who've said uh, they expect a decision to be made within the next two to four weeks. And I've, uh, as I've reported in the past, uh, those same executives expect the season to be canceled, but they expect official word from the league uh, within the next, you know, one to three weeks uh, between June 1st and like 10th to 12th on um, that, that time span. And again, I think it depends on when we hear from the players union. So that that decision will have a lot of impact on whether or not we see minor league baseball in 2020. So uh, that's just about what I've got from baseball. We'll go into that interview in a second. But uh, it'll, I think we're going to hear news on Major League Baseball in a few days uh, or week within the next week or two, and I'm really excited. I think we're going to see baseball back. It might take another proposal, um, but I think Major League Baseball is almost expecting a counter-proposal, counter-offer from the Players Union, and I'm really optimistic that we see baseball back in the near future. I think it's a great time to get started. Uh, I would hope State governments are making their... I've seen some... New York is ready to open up for sports. Uh, Florida's there. California's heading in that direction. Arizona. So who knows if those what those states will do. Uh, teams in Canada, what will, what, what will the Blue Toronto Blue Jays do? Will they be allowed to travel across the border? Will exceptions be made for them? So there's a lot of stuff that has to be dis- discussed beyond just baseball and in terms of the law and what's going on right now. But in the end, I'm really optimistic that we will see baseball back within the next month or uh, not the not quite the next month, but within the next two months. Uh, I'm hoping we can still get in that 82 game season. That would be great for fans and uh, and anyone who hasn't heard yet. Make sure to watch Korean baseball on ESPN most mornings. Uh, that has been going strong, and it's a good refresher of baseball. Fun storylines to watch there. Always a great crew of people both playing and broadcasting on ESPN. So, finally, before we wrap this up, Chris Cotillo from MassLive.com spoke with me about his immense charitable effort uh, raising money and for COVID-19 relief funds uh, for food banks. He's raised money. He's raised money for uh, different, just so many different funds around the country. Uh, so he auctioned off uh, items that he collected as a child and teenager from when he went to Red Sox games and various baseball games, uh, he would get the autographs and he got some pretty good players. And then he started auctioning them off on his Twitter page. He got other people inspired, other people donated items. So he ended up raising, he's going to talk about this in the, in the call, but he ended up raising uh, tens of thousands of dollars, uh, hundreds of items sold, uh, dozens of charities donated to. And he, not only did he raise nearly $60,000, but he also inspired other people to start their own uh, campaigns and auctioning off their own 
items. Uh, he's been on various national outlets such as CNN to discuss his uh, really honorable endeavors. Uh, you know, the utmost respect to Chris for all of the hard work he's done uh, while well, this coronavirus has sent everyone home and put a pause on sports and sports media. So really great uh, stuff from Chris. Kudos to him for all the hard, hard work he's done. And I'm thrilled to hear what he has to say in this interview. So without further ado, Chris Cotillo of MassLive.com. Welcome to the show. So before we begin, can you tell me a bit about what inspired you to hold this massive auction and what some of the first steps were in the process? Yeah, there really weren't a lot of steps or a lot of inspiration or anything like that. People keep asking me that. Um, it was kind of simple. Uh, Sunday night, it was actually Easter Sunday, sitting in the room where I'm right now back at my parents' house and... Um, was just kind of talking to a couple colleagues on Twitter. I had posted this stupid video of me dancing like the Easter Bunny when I was two or three years old. They, a couple people, uh, Mark Bertrand from 98.5 and uh, my colleague Matt Votor at Mass Live, they both said, hey, if you recreate that video, we'll donate $25 each to a food bank. And I, th I thought, well, that would be cool. It'll take me two minutes. That would be $100 for a food bank. And I thought, you know, maybe that would be a good way to make an impact because I feel like I haven't done anything, you know, to help. And just sitting in here, I think a lot of people feel helpless and all that stuff um, while we're all at home. And then it just literally dawned on me, like, well, I can just auction off these autographs in the closet. But, I mean, really, it was just a quick, this could happen, let's do it. And um, I texted my boss to make sure he was cool with it. He said, yeah, of course. And uh, from... I guess the conception of the idea that the first autograph going up was literally probably like five minutes. And um, after that, I realized that I had something where people were really going to do it. Um, and I just had to make sure I was committed to really wanting to mail out all these items and be on top of all these options and make sure people weren't taking advantage of the opportunity and all that stuff. So um, once that happened and once I uh, realized there was interest, it was a quick process and uh, I kind of, promised that nothing would be off limits and um from there it took off yeah and now i've seen you mention a couple times on twitter that you were hesitant to begin the auction because you weren't sure if people would be interested and you weren't sure if they would bid what allowed you to get over that fear and officially begin your highly successful auction yeah well i mean it was it was like about six or seven double takes the first night on how much people were bidding on it you know like oh my god really that's awesome you know i mean I, I've said also that these items would not go for as much as they did if it wasn't for charity. So I think people, you know, knew that we're being very generous. And there's people that bid on a lot of stuff. There's people that only bid on one item. Like there's all, all sorts of different people that pitched in. Um, but, you know, at first, yeah, I had two concerns. Number one, I thought people were going to think I got this autograph on the job, which I didn't. And mm -hmm. number two, um, I thought that maybe people wouldn't bid or people wouldn't, it wouldn't take off. And really there's no harm if it didn't. It just would be, uh, you know, something that I tried and it failed and maybe I made a couple hundred bucks here or there. But uh, like I said, that first night I saw what people were bidding and I was kind of surprised that they were bidding the amounts they were in a, in a good way. And um, from there it just, uh, it became clear that, all right, well, I haven't even unleashed my really good stuff in this collection yet. And at that point, I hadn't even thought about, you know, other people potentially donating. That hadn't even crossed my mind. But that that changed quickly once Alex Cora got involved and donated some signed shoes. So um, it was huge. that was huge and, and helped the profile of it. And uh, that first week, it became really like a full-time job. Yeah, so it ended up definitely being a huge hit, of course. What was the first item you auctioned off? Uh, what was the item? What did it sell for? What did the process look like? 
Yeah, it was an Adrian Belfort signed card from, I think he was uh, in a Mariners uniform on the card, and I started at 15 bucks, you know, which I, I don't think I started anything that low, and 370 items after that, um, because it went for 75 bucks, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, 75, I think it was the Greater Boston Food Bank, which I think, you know, was, was what most of the items were for food banks, and especially Greater Boston and Worcester County, which is closer to home for me here. Um, so, yeah, that went for 75, and that first night, uh, Jason Veritek autographed that went for 160, and I just thought at that point it was like, these are awesome, crazy prices people are willing to pay, and now the market's set like this, but it would be a disservice if I didn't, uh, if I didn't keep posting as many things as I can. So how much of a dent did your autograph collection take? Uh, how many did you auction off? Yeah, uh, 90%. Um, I just, I, I really haven't, I truly haven't looked at them in years and years and years. Um, it was a great, great hobby that I had before I considered doing this for a job. My parents were good enough to take me into Fenway and take me to card shows so many times. And we have so many good memories of that. So, and my dad said this. We did an interview with the Associated Press the other day, which is really cool. My dad gets to be on that because, you know, that's not um, something you see every day. And um, so I really enjoyed it. But uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, a hobby back then. And, and since I've been in the job, your relationships with these players change and, and autographs are not the way you connect with them anymore. Um, and to me, you know, there's some special items. There's Dave, I have like four David Ortiz autographs. I auctioned off three of them and kept one. Um, you know, there's a few guys that my dad enjoyed meeting because they were guys that he rooted for growing up, Fred Lynn and Jim Rice, that I had multiples of, and I, you know, gave up three, kept one, that kind of thing. But other than that, there was nothing that was off limits. I said, I thought, you know, if I were to have a Mount Rushmore of autographs I want for myself, it would be Ortiz, which I kept one, uh, Brady, who I don't have, Roy Williams, who I don't have, um, and I don't even know who the fourth one would be. So, um, yeah, it was it was. You know, there was, I looked at some stuff, and, and I, it was tough to part with because I had good memories of it. But it was, like I said, it would have been almost a disservice to not put them up for what the prices they were going for. So after that first night of auctions, did you have an idea uh, what percent of your supply you would sell? Did you know after that first night that you'd be parting with 90% of your supply? Or did it not seem like you'd be parting with that many? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I think it was clear at that point. And, uh, or until the interest waned. There was a time, you know, probably like a week and a half or two weeks in, probably day 12 or 13 around then when there was just one night and I was putting stuff up. And it wasn't, you know, the premier stuff, but it wasn't doing super well, you know, and like it wasn't it wasn't doing great. And I thought, all right, we might have hit our hit our peak and we're coming down the other side of the mountain now. And it was a great run, but um you know, maybe do a few more really good items and see what comes of it. And then from there, um and you kind of picked up again. Uh, and, and the thing that kept it going was the donors. I mean, I, I keep seeing all the stuff that says, you know, my my autograph collection raised 57000 it, it wasn't that. It was like my autograph collection probably raised less than 10000 Um And the things that were donated by a lot of people, whether it was Alex Cora, the Red Sox themselves, um, or, you know, a few private collectors that helped me out, Nesson, WEI, the guys at Section 10, like all that stuff was the really valuable stuff. You know, I think the Section 10 thing, a Section 10 experience of hanging out and going to a game with Carabas and Steve Peralt and Coley Mick and Bryn Foley uh, on that show. Uh, we had five people pay 1500 to the Red Sox Foundation for that. 
The Bogarts jersey was 1,000. The Nesson experience is 1,100. EEI experience is 1,250. So, I mean, 90% of the, the high-priced items and the big-ticket items were not mine. So it really was a team effort. I just, you know, got to be the one, the middleman, as I always say and have been saying, because it's really true. You know, it's um, it was a uh, – I was just lucky to be – kind of the one who thought of the idea and um, people have been extremely generous, not just donating and bidding, but also giving items to be auctioned off. And then I noticed social media obviously welcomed and appreciated what you were doing, but several people were inspired by your actions and they took to starting their own auctions. Do you know how many people were inspired by you and what was that like? Yeah, on a, on a large scale, a couple other people in the Boston media who I didn't uh, actually know before this process. Mike Giardi with NFL Network, who's someone I've obviously watched along with the rest of us, you know, on TV as a Patriots fan, but someone I didn't know. And we talked, you know, constantly over DM about kind of how to do things. And I think his auctions are somewhere in 20 to 25,000, um, which is awesome. Uh, the Wellesley baseball team in, uh, in Massachusetts did some of their own. I know they got Will Middlebrooks and Jenny Dell involved, and they made some donations there. So they were over 10000 last time I checked. And there's a few other people. You know, there's the Cards for COVID account. That's a, another uh, pair of brothers that are doing it. I mean, there's a lot of people that have done it. And, um, and I encourage everybody to do it. You know, it's just uh, if, if this stuff doesn't mean that much to you, the, the pricing and, and what people are willing to donate is incredible. Um, you know, I think what it came down to for people and that, and there's a couple uh, exceptions here where things get out of hand. But, you know, they wanted to make a donation. They wanted to um, make a difference and be charitable. And it just so happened that they got a piece of memorabilia on the side. You know, obviously people wanted stuff, but they were willing to pay a little bit more or a lot more than they were willing to, um, you know, just to get the card if the money was going in my pocket. So I think that was clear early on. And um, like I said, the, the market is literally endless. You know, there's still people – there's people disappointed that I didn't have more items, you know, I mean, I, I was going to keep bidding. So um, I just at a certain point, there's a shelf life for everything. So I encourage anybody else who um, happens to be listening and has stuff to auction it off, tag me in the tweet. I'd be happy to retweet it because I know there's a lot of hungry bidders who um, were so awesome with my stuff that are going to be willing to do the same for a lot of other auctions. And then how important do you think it was for you to not only have a big platform yourself, but many of your connections, uh, different friends and fellow reporters and writers, how important was it that they also had a big platform that they could share your work and process on? So ultimately, it wasn't just your platform, but it was other platforms from other uh, reporters and writers, too. That was all of it. You know, I um, I remember writing a college essay to go to BC, which um, ended up being a rival of the school I went to. And by rival, I mean a school that we beat in basketball, I think, seven times out of seven while I was <laughs> at Chapel Hill. But, um, that, you know, I, I on my essay, there was something like, how do you plan on giving back to people in, in you know, the career path you choose to pursue? And uh, for me, it was, you know, more uh, – I kind of looked at how Ken Rosenthal uh, has done his bow tie campaign throughout his career and thought, you know, that's really cool. Like, he, you know, does a different bow tie for a different charity every week, and he uses this platform in a, a tr- non-traditional way. You see tons of athletes step up to do it, but I don't think reporters do it that often, obviously. You know, it's, I'm not not saying anybody, you know, have to, but um, we have big platforms too. We have a ton of followers on Twitter and people who follow, so um, why not? We're in a time where a lot of people need it. Try and, um, 
yeah, I was lucky on this one. You know, I, like I said, I didn't think it was going to take off at the beginning, but um, as it grew and grew, it uh, it really you know showed how many good people there are out there willing to help. Definitely. And then you mentioned that you had roughly three dozen uh, charities that you donated to, with the vast, vast majority of them being food banks. Uh, do you, any specific charities stand out to you? What caused you to pick those charities? Yeah, it was probably 35 or 40 different charities, and that ranges from with you know the Greater Boston Food Bank and the Red Sox Foundation. They had a COVID hardship fund. I mean, those charities probably you know, made tens of thousands out of the 57,000 just because they had big ticket items and, you know, they are certain days where they were the charity I'd picked and things just went off. Um, then there were places that, you know, might have made 30 bucks or might have made 50 bucks just because, um, you know, someone had DM me and said, hey, I work for this charity. Can you do an item for us? So that was cool to have charities reach out and be able to, you know, play a little part for them. Um, you know, there's a lot of really cool um different charities all over the country um you know for the mike trout card which went for over 1300 that was for the orange county food bank in anaheim um you know if it was the johnny bench eight by ten that went to a food bank in cincinnati so you know i think when i was looking at it there's a lot of covid charities and uh gofundmes and all that kind of stuff and um i looked at it and did some reading about you know how some of those things might be um, you know, people trying to take advantage. Obviously, that's not the case 90% of the time, but um, I just felt like food banks were a clear place where there was a need, um, and there was, you know, no question exactly where the money was going to. So, uh, to me, it just made a lot of sense, and that was kind of the focus on 90 to 95% of the charities were food banks, I would say. Interesting. And do you know how many, uh, not only auction winners, but also repeat customers you had? Because if I had to imagine, there were a a bunch of people who probably came back and purchased more items after winning the first auction. Yeah, there's a lot of repeat customers, and there's a lot of people who, you know, I, I would anticipate are fortunate people, and they pitched in and bought a lot of items. I knew that, you know, they were going to be frequently in my mentions trying to buy a lot of stuff, and, you know, people racked up bills of, like, a couple to a few thousand Um and I really appreciate those people. But there's a lot of one and done as well. Uh, so I don't know. It's a tough question to answer. I'd say probably um, over 200 probably people, you know, donated in total. Um, and uh, but like I said, from it was from a dollar to, you know, a thousand. So I really appreciated all of it. And um, you know, I saw a lot of really cool stuff. Even people that didn't win uh, would donate or people that won said, I'll make the donation, but give the item to someone else. So. Um, there was a ton of times where I was just kind of floored at the uh, generosity of people. So you mentioned that there were different charities and organizations that uh, reached out to you to uh, participate and join forces with you for this uh, endeavor. Did you have any players contribute different signed items of their own or any public figures either? Yeah, you know, I had talked to some players that kind of wished to remain anonymous because they didn't want their names out there in the spotlight. So, you know, that's kind of what uh happened with that um you know we got in touch with the red sox reached out from the pr department and and donated some items um you know three different members of the pr department actually did uh one of them came from the team so that was really awesome you know to see and and a lot of people um giving their own items which is great and then of course whenever you have a such uh such a big or highly successful endeavor such as this one there's money changing hands and whenever there's money changing hands there's sure to be some problems from time to time 
What types of issues did you run into, such as people not paying what they pledged to pay uh, or other confrontations or issues that you might have stumbled across? Yeah, that was actually pretty rare. That was a big concern of mine that people were just going to throw out numbers and then not end up paying. And that happened on a few occasions. And um, it's disappointing, obviously, but I understand. You know, I think a lot of people were bidding and trying to help out, and then they were not really um, – they didn't realize that they might actually win. So that happened a few times. Um, so when that happened, I just asked, all right, well, donate what you can, and I'll send you a consolation prize for my collection. So, you know, I had somebody bid 300 and then they said, I actually can't afford that, but can I donate 25 And, yeah, well, that's great. Do that, and I'll I'll donate – I'll mail you something for my collection. Obviously not at the same level as the $300 item that they had, but, um, you know, just trying to get the, get the stats up and get the total up as high as I possibly could. Um, because uh, I was aiming for, you know, a certain point I was aiming for 50,000 and we passed that. So, um, that definitely happened a few times. Um, I had people jokingly bid, no, oh, I'll do 3500 on this. You know, and I DM them and say, hey, I don't know if you know, but this is a charity auction, blah, 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 blah. And it was usually, oh, my God, I didn't realize. I'm so sorry. Um, and so people were like 99% of the time really, really good with no issues. And when there were little issues, um, you know, they took care of themselves. And I was able to make sure that, um, you know, only, I only had one item out of the 375. I had to, had to go up again. Uh, only had one really big controversy at the end of an item on the Mike Trout one. Um, so it was it was fun playing mediator because, you know, I had to set rules and I made rules. And if people didn't follow those rules, then um, it, it would ruin the whole thing. Um, and, and people were generally amazing. So whenever you auction off over 350 items, there's sure to be a bittersweet feeling to it, too. Uh, how long did it take you to collect all those items? And what was the feeling like when you put them in the box, shipped them away the and... Uh, basically said goodbye to the items that you spent a lot of time collecting. Yeah. Um, you know, they were all 2010 to 2012, you know, during the summer, my mom would take my friends and I into Fenway and we'd go to games and go down by the field and all that stuff. And that was awesome. Um, my dad and I went to a bunch of card shows. Uh, so, you know, a lot of really good experience. And like I said, as we've gone through these things, we remember them and looked at some pictures and, um, and, you know, I had to resurface some pictures of me 10 years and 100 pounds ago with Mike Lowell and Johnny Bench and some of those guys. So that was cool to see um, and cool to remember. Um, and I think uh, there were a couple bittersweet ones, obviously. You know, Mike Trout was a tough card to give up, a signed card that he signed for me his rookie year at Fenway. But when it's going to go for $1,300 to a food bank, it's you can't hang on to that. Um, there's no sentimental value that's worth that to me. So, um but it was it, a lot of cases where, you know, this is a random player that people might like, and it doesn't, uh, I don't really even remember getting this one, but I collected a lot, and I had a lot of duplicates, and I had a lot of things from that time, and I guess seventh grade through ninth grade probably, and the summers in between, and going to Fenway as much as possible, and I have really fond memories of that stuff, but um, I know that if I told the eighth grade version of me that, you know, this would turn into this someday, I, I would be happy with it. Maybe not as and not as an immature eighth grader, but now for sure. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, uh, especially like you, know, I looked at the trout one for a minute before I packaged it up, but, and, uh, made sure there was insurance and tracking on that piece of mail because it was worth 1300 bucks. Yeah. Interesting. And then switching topics for the final question here, uh, 
you are a uh, beat writer, journalist uh, for MassLive.com covering mostly the Red Sox. With baseball season potentially returning soon, what does your job look like both now and in the near future if the uh, league and the players union come to an agreement? Yeah, it's all about kind of seeing how the negotiations are going right now. Obviously, those are ongoing between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Um, for me, it's more of the same, um, just kind of tracking those and any developments and sports that happen um, because everything kind of is intertwined at this point. And at Mass Live, we've been uh, all writing about different sports. So I've done um, a lot of Pat stuff, a little bit of Celtic stuff, even though I don't really know anything about the NBA. Uh, I guess college hoops is way better, but there's a uh, – it's been more of the same and gearing up for whatever the season looks like. You know, I think it's uh, really unclear exactly what it's going to look like for the players, but who knows if the media is going to be let in or the media is going to be a part of this, or uh, if we're going to be able to be in the press box or if we're even going to go to, you know, spring training or anything like that. So I think there's a, a billion questions left to be answered. Um, and I know in the MLB, MLBPA negotiations, how the writers are treated is probably right about last on the list. I'm joking, but that's obviously not something they're going to be concerned with first. So I don't know. I don't know if as a writer I'd want to even go to the games. If I want to travel, I'm 24, so I'm not necessarily in an at-risk group. But um, I don't know if the company would want to even send us. So there's there's so many question marks left um, in terms of what this season is going to look like. It's obviously going to be a lot different than my first two years on the beat. I'm aware of that. Um, but looking forward to baseball hopefully being back in some form, and I think you know, at the end of the day, there's too much, too much at play and too much at stake for them to, you know, squabble over money and, and ruin this for everybody at the time when the country could really use it uh, for for uh, healing purposes. Definitely. Well, thank you, Chris Cotillo, for joining the show today. I truly appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. But further, I appreciate all of the hard work you've done over the past few months, raising over $57,000 for over 35 charities. You are truly doing incredible work. And I know I speak for a, the vast majority of the community when I say I look up to you for all of your endeavors. Uh, it's truly amazing. And uh, thank you so much for your hard work and everything you've done for the community. And thank you for joining the show today. I appreciate it. You too, bud. Well, Chris Cotillo, everyone. Thank you again, Chris, for taking the time to speak. Truly amazing stuff. That wraps up this episode of the Double Play Podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at Double Play PTST. Follow me on Twitter at Anderson Picard for some uh, interesting hot takes and maybe rarely funny content. Who knows? I think it's funny. You probably don't. Anyways... I hope you guys all had a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for kicking off your week with me on the Double Play Podcast. Uh, And thank you again to Chris Cotillo for joining the show. Hopefully, by the next time we convene on this podcast, we'll have a positive update regarding the return of baseball and the beginning of the football season. If we don't, life goes on, but looking forward to some positive news by the next time. I record this podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, stay safe and keep staying strong. 